0: The city of San Francisco has a fog control program. Are you talking about fog, like F-O-G,
1: when it's cloudy and misty?
0: No, fog as in fats, oils, and grease. Why? Because apparently these three things were costing the city millions, like 3.5 million each year, different fats, oils. And Greece, from all of the cooking that goes on in a city like San Francisco, was ending up in unwanted places. What kinds of unwanted places? I doubt Greece has been coming out of nowhere and seeping all over the city. Well, no, but actually San Francisco comes in number one as the city, with most restaurants per capita. 39.3 restaurants per 10,000 households. It beat up even New York for the number one spot.
1: Wow. So, does that mean that all of the oils and grease that are left over from all of the food that is being prepared in San Francisco and that isn't disposed of properly ends up in the pipes?
0: Yes, and it hardens and then clogs the pipes, constricting water flow the same way cholesterol affects blood flow in arteries. So, replacing the pipes costs millions
1: to the point that San Francisco's Water Power Sewer Public Utilities Commission started its own fog control program, where restaurants and food service establishments are required to install grease capturing equipment that collects the grease which is then
0: collected by the city. What happens to all this fog?
1: In this episode we'll explore the afterlife of grease, popcorn smelling exhaust, EPA standards, and the future of fuel in the United States. We're here at Dogpatch Biofuel Station, where the grease from all over San Francisco is reborn as fuel for your
2: car. One of the requirements of Dogpatch Biofuels for all its fuel vendors is that the biodiesel is made from used cooking oil feedstock. So all of this fuel started out life as waste grease, which is UCO-derived, UCO being used cooking oil.
0: So how is cooking oil turned into fuel? Here's Salali with a quick rundown of the steps.
1: So San Francisco generates 60 million gallons of fog per year. Fog is also known as trap waste and is the stuff in restaurant grease traps. Water and other impurities are removed from it, and brown grease is produced. This brown grease is what is converted into biodiesel that you use to fill up your tank. It allows you to drive on biodiesel and bask in the glorious scent of the exhaust of a biodiesel running car.
0: So, what exactly does it smell like?
1: Barbecue, popcorn. It (laughs) can have various kind of scents. You
2: know. Yeah, it smells vaguely foody. Is ethanol
1: the same? Or what's the difference between biodiesels and ethanol and regular diesel? I'm kind
0: of confused. Well, that is a great question. You know, all of these terms get quite confusing, don't they? Here's Carl Knapp, one of my professors at Stanford, to give us a rundown of the key terminologies in the alternative fuel conversation.
3: Basically biofuels are usually liquid fuels made from uh, some kind of plant material. Um, so uh, the biggest liquid fuels that we use that are biofuels are ethanol and biodiesel. So biodiesel is a kind of biofuel, but so is ethanol. Ethanol is made from two sources, normally corn or uh, sugarcane. So Brazil makes most of their ethanol from sugarcane, the United States most, makes most of their ethanol from corn.
1: So it's made from food, just like biodiesel. You know, recently there's been a lot of talk about how we should go about deciding whether the grains we grow should go to actual food production or fuel production. Food versus fuel. What need is more important? This is a world
4: that has a significant amount of food and actually has a dearth, a lack, of low-cost, renewable, low-carbon energy, and that is really the challenge of our generation is how do we not have increasing price of energy cause poverty and starvation, uh, because we can, we can grow food. That, that is not an issue for us. What we can't grow is cheap energy without a significant, stable, long-term government policies.
1: What are the issues currently surrounding ethanol production?
0: To find out, we sat down with David Lobel, director of the Center on Food Security and the Environment at Stanford University, to talk about the layer of complexity surrounding the production of ethanol and the recent increased investment in its production.
5: Again, the, there's opportunity cost in the sense of if you really focus on ethanol and as a way of displacing liquid fuels, you're not focusing on other stuff, and it may be in the end, not very productive, because you're really focusing on the intermediate step, which is the liquid fuel, as opposed to the final goal of of what we're using liquid fuel for, which is transportation. And better to think more generally about how do you move people around and move goods around than how do you create liquid fuel. You know, it makes very good sense for people in the short term, like businesses, et cetera, to figure out how do you make liquid fuel, because there's a clear demand for that. But it's also important at the longer timescales to think about What's the real goal here? And, and we don't want to necessarily constrain our solution space to just producing liquid fuels in the best way possible. We should think more broadly.
1: So, are there any specific things being done right now at this moment to try to solve the food versus fuel problem? We asked Eric McPhee, an entrepreneur, venture capitalist, and philanthropist who founded and funds companies in renewable energy, oil and gas, and agriculture. We asked him because we thought he would give us a unique insight and also to see if he knew of any companies that were specifically oriented toward solving the food versus fuel problem.
4: Well, Metis was actually founded with a specific purpose of using non-food feedstocks. And so we looked uh, at what the lowest cost feedstock would be to produce uh, a non-food biofuel. And what we ended up with is that uh, the lowest cost vegetable oil in the world is called palm oil, comes from palm trees, and it grows primarily in Malaysia and Indonesia. And it's for the poorest people in the world. Specifically, China is the number one consumer, and India is the number two consumer. And India, seven years ago, wanted to build a biofuels. And so we ended up building a 50-million-gallon plant on the east coast of India using not the edible food. But in order to get edible palm oil, you have to remove a product called steering. And stearine looks like candle wax. At room temperature, it's white, it's solid. It looks exactly like a candle. And we built a plant that heats up that candle wax, runs it through a process, and makes biodiesel. Well, we know we're among the lowest-cost producers of biodiesel.
3: Biodiesel uh, can be made from a lot of different things. Uh, soybeans, palm oil, grease from McDonald's french fries. Uh-huh. But it actually uh, is an ester that is made from uh, just about any kind of uh, fat. And so, uh, soy oil is a kind of fat. And it, it, it's not chemically identical to diesel. It's actually a, a little bit different, but it acts just like diesel fuel in a diesel engine. The big advantages of biodiesel are that it has it's less flammable and it's biodegradable, unlike regular diesel, which is actually hazardous when you spill it. Biodiesel will actually biodegrade. So
0: will biodiesel produce less
3: pollution than regular diesel? So uh, biodiesel produces about 10% more nitrogen oxides than regular diesel, but it has a low, uh, much lower particulates, lower carbon monoxide, lower unburned hydrocarbons and other pollutants. So on the whole, biodiesel actually burns cleaner, but it's not across the board.
0: One interesting thing that isn't thought about and even less talked about in the conversation surrounding the recent EPA's proposal is that you have to remember to look past just the proposal's specific effect on just business, whether it's on a larger or smaller scale. In an attempt to change the conversation
1: from supply-side issues and more towards the demand side, so how much biofuel is actually being demanded, David LaBelle brings a totally different perspective to the issue.
5: You know, we have saturated for whatever reasons in terms of, of how much transportation that we uh, get, or in particular how much um, uh, gasoline that we demand, and that's uh, not something I'm really that knowledgeable about in terms of why that happens. but I think it's symptomatic of a lot of things in a really rich society your your demand for things actually you know level off. you can only you can only move around so much, you can only eat so much uh, and and it's I think surprised the people a little bit how quickly that's come down but um, but it has
2: the industry itself is really strong, but we keep. You know, year to year, it's just it'll be a completely different regulatory landscape from one year to the next, and so it's it's really hard to attract investors. It's really hard to um, build a really solid core user group um, when all of these hurdles are being thrown in our way. Right now, the biggest fight that we're facing is the EPA has reduced. Um, the RVO volume mandates for the Renewable Fuel Standard in 2014. The um, the anticipated volume mandate for biodiesel was 1.7 billion gallons, and that's billion with a B. And they've dropped that to 1.28 billion gallons. So, you know, that's that's pretty significant because they're actually slowing down. Um, the expansion of biodiesel.
5: I think what EPA is responding to is the is just the fact that gasoline demand has not continued to rise over time, and and the original mandates were in terms of just billions of gallons and increasing over time. But if you don't have overall gas demand rising, and you continue to demand more and more, or, or legislate that more and more needs to become from uh, ethanol, what happens is you get in situations where you actually have a higher fraction of ethanol in gasoline than uh, most cars can run on. And so I think they're just responding to that reality of what's called the blend wall, is it even if you filled all cars with 10% ethanol, gasoline, uh, you would not have enough ethanol compared to what the mandate said should have been there. They decided that it should be in billions of gallons and it should keep increasing over time. And in particular, there's a lot of... Um, uh, interest in that, in, in that demand from the corn ethanol side of things. And so, assuming that, that these new laws or these new um, proposed rules go into effect and that they do change it to be more of a um, reflection of, of the actual energy demand, then I, I do think that it will ease, certainly ease the, um, the upward pressure that these kind of uses put on prices because it will essentially be a flat demand as opposed to a rapidly rising demand which it has been over the last 10 years. So the, the rules are, um, yeah, I think reflecting the reality, and, and they will bring the markets um, in, into a little bit more of a calmer state.
1: just learned the craziest thing in one of my classes and hearing David's perspective on the ethanol issue just reminded me about it. I think it was something like if all of the main cereal and sugar crops that represent 42% of the global cropland were to be hypothetically converted to ethanol, this would correspond to only 57% of our total petroleum energy needs. And what's even worse is that it would leave no grains or sugars for human consumption,
0: none at all. Wow, so what you're saying is that by the very nature of ethanol production, converting our fuel sources to purely ethanol cannot be the only solution to our fuel problems. And biodiesel made from grease collection programs like San Francisco's Fog program that we just learned about that sources the fuel at a place like DogPash Biofuel Station also isn't a solution because of its scale problems. We just can't supply what is demanded from grease sources. So what is the solution?
1: Just ethanol and just biodiesel, or even a combination of both will not be able to produce the amount of fuel that this country, much less the world, consumes on a daily basis. A shift needs to occur, and while this shift presents many complex legal, economic, and environmental questions, we are beginning to enter a new era of necessary diversification of our energy supplies.
0: And as we just saw, it seems to be that the future of fuel in the United States is one of diversified fuel sources. For Green Grid Radio, this is Lindsay and Seat Lolly.
1: For more information, visit www.greengridradio.org and tune into KZSU 90.1 FM Mondays at 6 p.m. and subscribe to our podcast in the iTunes Store.